Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Did you know that music can accelerate child brain development and strengthen intellectual, emotional, and motor skills, as well as overall literacy? Bringing music into the classroom can help kids explore the mind-body connection and become comfortable with self-expression. Sadly, many children's music programs are lacking in the resources they need to let kids explore this creative space. That's why Osiris is happy to partner with the Mockingbird Foundation. Founded in 1996, the Mockingbird Foundation is a volunteer-run nonprofit organization dedicated to improving access to music education for America's youth. Each year, the foundation awards grants to dozens of music education programs and funds those grants through a combination of fundraising, publishing, and the curation of Fish.net, one of the earliest internet fan communities. Mockingbird is entirely volunteer with no staff, no salaries, and no office. So every dollar really does make a difference in providing children's music programs with the staffing, instruments, and support they need. The foundation gets over $150,000 each year in grants. To donate or to learn more, visit mbird.org. That's M-B-I-R-D.org. Today I want to tell you about a brand new podcast that I'm really loving. It's called 27 Club, and it's hosted by Jake Brennan, the creator and host of Disgraceland, and iHeartRadio's 2020 Best Music Podcast winner. 27 Club tells the stories of musical icons who all died at the age of 27, and season one is all about Jimi Hendrix. Jimi died mysteriously at the age of 27, and he lived his life unlike any other. He was arguably the greatest rock and roll guitar player of all time, and he was a busy guy. Busy getting kidnapped, busy running from the mafia, busy stealing trucks with Neil Young, trying to get to Woodstock on time. Jimmy got busy with himself and got himself kicked out of the army. He was fired by Little Richard, arrested by Seattle cops and Canadian Mounties, doused with LSD by his manager on stage in front of thousands, and haunted by the ghost of the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones. 
All of these Jimi Hendrix stories and more are coming at you in Season 1 of The 27 Club. If you like Disgraceland, Jimi Hendrix, larger-than-life rock stars, or just plain old mystery and drama, then you're going to love The 27 Club. Subscribe to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How's your night been so far? Has it been a long night? <laughs> uh, it's it's a, it's a little crazy. Uh, a little crazy. If, if, if tonight was a texture, how would you describe it? Uh, it it's soft, I would say. Uh, velvety, <laughs> perhaps. One could maybe one could say silky. Ooh, oh, silky. So you're saying it's a long, crazy, even silky night for episode six. <laughs> I would say that I feel like a stranger, but I can't feel like a stranger around you, Rob. And we don't have one to talk about tonight either. That's the the <laughs> one of the in, ultimate insults of choosing this show. Anyway, yeah, it's it's too bad. It's one of my favorite dead openers, by the way. I feel like a stranger. We did two. This is our second Brent show in a row, and yet no feel like a, like a stranger. It, it's very disappointing. It's harsh. I mean, it was like written to be an opener almost, right? I think so. I mean, it seems like it. I feel like in like the late '80s, it was one of those that would always open the show. I feel like Hell in a Bucket opened a lot of shows in the late '80s too. We do get a Hell in a, in a Bucket in this episode, for better or worse. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. You know, the other thing about this the show that's amazing, and you sent me a video of this of, of, of Trey talking about being at this show him and mike were at the show yeah yeah if you uh search on the youtube you can find it's some sort of strange early 2000s music in connecticut panel that happens to have both bob ware and trey anastasio from the band fish uh and yeah, trey, they, trey's looking skinny and he has short hair so you know yeah. it's 2.0 right short hair trey is uh it's like when like the old Jerry and Red trouble ahead thing. Yeah. If, if Trey's got short hair, you know, he's in a dark area, a, a dark place. Yeah, anyway, it's like, so it's, it wasn't Trey's first show, I guess, the show we're going to talk about tonight, but it does seem to be the one uh, that clicked for him. And what I what I like about the clip, and everybody can go watch it, or we might drop in a, a little audio from it, but he, he talks about the show just like Dick LaFala would talk about a show. He says it was like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat. Which, if you go back a few episodes, you remember, I think it was volume two, Dick described as being, like, hit with a brick in the face or something like that. So, equally violent uh, review of a a happy, hippie, Grateful Dead show. For the first time ever, in uh, 1983, and it had just an enormous, it was like getting hit in the head with with a baseball bat. (laughs) <laughs> I wish Trey had said like which song felt like being hit with a baseball bat like you know was it the Scarlet Fire or was it like keep your day job because <laughs> I felt like I felt like I was getting hit in the head with a baseball bat when I heard keep your day job right it's maybe a, not for the trans transcendent reasons it's one of those comments that can go both ways uh, 
but yeah, it's you know it's kind of like an important uh, event in fish history because it's only about a month and a half before they play their first show. Uh, I think uh, the, so. This show has a scarlet fire. It's part of why it was picked. And, yeah, uh, fish. Yeah, they're playing on their at like baby. some like student. Yeah, it was like a student union they were playing in, and I remember the story. Like, yeah, they played Scarlet Fire, and the students in the student union were playing Michael Jackson's Thriller mm-hmm. yeah. at the same time. And so they weren't digging. It's like how many like terrible college bands have played Scarlet Fire like in, like in the quad, <laughs> and and you know like over the years, like Fish is probably the only one who went on to like greater things from from those sorts of beginnings it's true yeah they were uh i think the the other students like gradually turned up thriller until fish had to stop playing is how the story goes uh they got drowned out by the almost year old thriller album (laughs) which was still (laughs) apparently preferable to hearing uh fish sing into their hockey stick mics uh in 1983 if only they knew only they knew they were witnessing jam band history unfold before their eyes it's true it's and a- and you know like you said in some way maybe this show this dead show set them on the path to uh, their own you know jam band greatness that's right it's also jam band history <laughs> this is 36 from the vault i'm steve yep i'm rob mitchum and uh, you said your last name. I feel like we're we're in episode six. I feel like people know our full names. I think we first can name casual. basis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not the man of a thousand podcasts like you are. Steve, uh, so well, I to, hey, I got to put my last name in there. Uh, this is uh, we're doing Dick's Picks, Volume Six, October Fourteenth, nineteen eighty three, at the Hartford Civic Center. That's right. Uh, and uh, part two of our uh, Brent excursion. That's right. Yeah. It's been crazy and silky, man. I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. I mean, this one, uh, I would say 50% more so (laughs) than DP5. (laughs) Uh, It's only getting silkier, but uh, yeah, you know, this is about as far as Dick's going to probe into the 80s for now. So we're we're just getting a little taste at this point, and then we'll be back in in the safety zone. talking about fish there in the opening during our, our our tuning segment and uh i feel like we're gonna maybe talk about fish again in this episode and uh it may have greater significance for us down the road i think that's all i'll say for now right yeah a little teaser uh to make sure everybody listens to the end of the episode but uh i guess maybe another little hint is that 
you know, with the with Dick Pick Six, we are kind of coming up to the end of like the first chapter almost of the Dick's Pick series. Like the, I guess most significantly, the cover art's going to change uh, between now and the next edition. So it does feel like a a time to take a to take a little break, take a little breath of fresh air, maybe think about some other bands for just uh, you know a couple hours. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll give you some more information down the line on that. Well, this is about the part of you know. We're about six songs in, and, you know, this is about the time where the dead might drop C.C. Ryder. So we're going to drop in one of our covers, you know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> in, our, in, in our seventh episode. But for now, we're, we're talking about Dick's Pick 6. And as I said before, this is our our second episode in the mini arc of, of Brent shows. And Dick's Picks Volume 5, of course, was from late 79. Although, as we talked about, it it feels spiritually like an 80 show. It feels like we're doing two 80 shows in a row, but this is officially an 80 show here. And I'm curious, like, you know, you were talking before we went into this Brent excursion about how you hadn't listened to a ton of 80 stuff yet. There was maybe a little bit of apprehension on your part. How, how have you been doing in the 80 zone? And are you excited to get back to the sanctity of the 70s, you know, after this, the 70s and 60s. Yeah, I would say uh, yes to all of the above. Uh, <laughs> no, I, like I have really enjoyed, I think, uh, coming into an era with fresher ears. Uh, the, the, the Brent era, as I've said, is not my go-to era for the dead. And while I, you know, I have heard some of it and sampled here and there, like I've never done a deep dive like we've done you know, over the last month or so of researching and recording these shows. And, you know, honestly, like, I definitely feel like I've gained an appreciation for this era. And I think I still have some issues with the dead in the 80s or the Brent era. But I don't think as many of my issues with the dead in this era are with Brent, as I would have thought. Like, there are Brent things that bug me still. Uh but there's other things going on that I'm maybe not as into and kind of explain my coolness on this era of the dead. But I would say that it, like I've definitely gained an appreciation for what they're doing and, you know, really tried to like take it on its own terms and think about what they were trying to do and not try to compare it back to the 70s uh, and 60s shows that I, you know, like the most from the Grateful Dead. I mean, it's pretty easy to just treat them as an entirely different band. And once you do that, I think you you start to hear some things that, uh, you know, wouldn't turn up if you're just doing a, an A-B test with, say, Dick's Picks 4. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things I love about the Dead is that they do have different eras that feel like maybe not an entirely different band, but certainly are distinct from other eras and and there are attributes of the 80s that I really really like and that I think are interesting and and I and I like Brent I like what he does even some of the things that he does that are cheesy I I get into what he does and I've I've been enjoying exploring this era and this show in particular you know it's a weird era to be spotlighting in Dick's Picks especially this early in the series right. because 1983 is not an especially you know uh, beloved year in dead history. Uh, when we talk about the 80s, I think a lot of times people talk about that 87 to 89 period as being this resurgent period for the dead. Um, although at the time that these records were being released, 
that wasn't that far in the past, and there were a lot of official releases from that era. So, in a way, it's weird that they released a show from 83, but on the other hand, uh, I thought it was kind of cool that they did it because it's an excuse to explore this period in their history that it, it feels like a no man's land in, in Dead World, where it's not the 70s, and it's not the popular part of the 80s. It's this weird era where you know it was it was the it was pre-touch of gray and their resurgence and and then becoming a stadium band and they were kind of like just out in their own world at this point you know where they they didn't have a ton of cultural relevance you know they were as probably as far from the mainstream as they were ever going to be uh in their career uh and there were a lot of weird things going on in the band, obviously, health issues that were starting to take hold with Jerry Garcia that would ultimately culminate with his coma in 1986. But uh, I don't know. I, with a band like this, the down periods or, or a period that might seem like a down period, sometimes those are the most fun places to explore. So hopefully we'll find that as we get into this album uh, in this uh, episode. Um, right. So as I alluded to, you know, the, the Dick's Picks Volume 6, it, it comes out in 1996. It was October of 1996, correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as we said last episode, I think, um, you know, Dick's expertise was very much sort of a 68 to 78 run of shows. And I don't think he knew the 80s quite as well, but there was a lot of pressure to put out a Brent era show, which he did. Uh, by, you know, just clinging to the very end of the 70s and getting a 79 show out for Dick's Picks 5. Uh, so then, you know, Dick's Picks 6, he ventured a little deeper into Brent's era here. Uh, it's, you know, a little different in a couple other ways. Like, um, all the previous shows had been mastered from the big reel-to-reel tapes they had in the vault. Uh, but for whatever reason, in the early 80s, the, the board tapes they were running were straight to cassette. Uh, in this case, a Dolby B metal cassette, which I saw somebody refer to as the Edsel of tape formats. Uh, it's, so it, uh, I think, posed some special technical challenges. Uh, it's one of the things I love about the fact that they've started releasing all the Dick's Picks on vinyl uh, because, you know, this is 1996. So they were, you know, painstakingly transferring a metal cassette to a compact disc master. Uh, and then, you know, 20 years later, somebody is painstakingly transferring a compact disc master to a vinyl master. <laughs> and it like it's one of these things where it's like, all right, this is a case where having the vinyl is just purely like an aesthetic object. It's not anything to do with sound quality. In fact, you're probably losing it. It's almost like a third generation tape at that point. Yeah. Can I just say, uh, can, but, I, can I say that the real heads listen to Dick's Picks on CD? And I'm saying that as a CD loyalist, but like the shit came out originally on CD. So if you wanted to, yeah. if you wanted to play it the way it was originally heard, you got to get the discs, man. That's all That's I'm right. saying. Yeah, we had some blow blowback on the Twitter about that when I asked. Uh, we did a poll on which disc of DP4 was their people's favorites, and people were like, "Discs? What are you talking about?" Yeah, discs? I know. I mean, the, the people. Yeah, there, there's like these weird, like kind of anti, like you know, people that are uh, they love vinyl, but then they're they look they look down on CDs. I'm telling you. CDs are the like are the vinyl of 2020. I'm throwing that out there. <laughs> That's like, already coming back. Okay, because vi- well, vinyl is like way overpriced at this point. 
CDs you can get. You know, CDs are basically like what records were 20 years ago, like where you could get records that were pretty good for not a lot of money because yeah. no one wanted them. And yeah. and you, know, you didn't have to spend like $40 or $50 like on one record. And that's what CDs are right now. Although Dick's Picks are actually pretty expensive because uh, they're, they're <laughs> right. out of print. Limited but, rad. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's that, we don't need to go down that tangent right now. I, I will say that like I I think you can and I'm not a huge audiophile person necessarily, but I think you can tell the uh, the difference in sound quality with this record. Yeah. I mean, compared to the last couple Dick's picks that we've had, and um, this also wasn't recorded by Betty Kenner Jackson or by Bear. It was it was a Dan Healy recording, although I don't think it's necessarily his fault that this. Sounds like a little thin. It, it is probably because of, uh, you know, mastering it from cassette versus a reel-to-reel tape. Yeah, to me, it sounded like a FM broadcast. Like I remember getting right. a lot of early dead tapes were taped off the radio originally, and something about you know broadcasting a show over uh, FM gives it that sort of like tinny sound, and you always get kind of like a a mix that has the vocals a lot louder than everything else. I think and. The show, you know, I, I almost kind of enjoyed that feel because it, it is such of like a sort of a nostalgic uh, audio aesthetic for me with Grateful Dead tapes, like having those shows that they they sound really bright and really clear, but also kind of uh, off in in that radio broadcast sort of way. It's also weirdly appropriate for uh, Brent's keyboard tone that it sound a little rinky dink. It's like, oh yeah, this this this, this rinky dink quality just accentuates the rinky dink sound of his keyboards uh on on this uh on this record. Uh That's a yeah, lo- it sounds that's like a, a lot that- of the music in the 80s that was on the radio too, which we'll get it, into. Like right, this right. just just feels like a very thin sound era. A very gated drums era. I don't think we get any gated drums on this, but uh <laughs> yeah, that's that's the era we're in right now. Yeah. So you know, so Dick picked this show. I think there was, it was not, you know, his first choice of show to put out, but uh, they, there was demand for an 80s show. He kind of combined the demand for an 80s show with the demand for a show that had a Scarlet Fire, which may explain why this was kind of a weird pick and sort of a controversial pick even to this day. Uh, but he did find this particular, you know, show that has a, you know, a pretty hefty Scarlet Fire in the second set and Estimated and Eyes, which were also Dick favorites, of course. So uh, I think, you know, there's a number of reasons why he picked this show, but I think also a lot of discussion among Deadheads about whether there was a better show from this era that he could have picked. Uh, well, so well, we'll, we'll, well, get into well that. this is like, I mean, this is from the Fall 83 tour. And right. it seems like for 83 the most action seems to be from this tour. I mean, there were uh, a couple other shows released uh, from fall of 83. There's a Dave's picks uh, from uh, it's Dave's picks 27 from September 2nd. And uh, in that 30 trips uh, box set, there's October 21st. Um, also, I just to throw this out there, you know, we were chatting with some people on Twitter about 83 because I was just trying to get recommendations like, like, you know, what other really good 83 shows are there? And like one person recommended uh, the show from uh, uh, Red Rocks on September 6th, uh, which has a really cool like help on the way Slipknot Franklin's Tower progression. It's like a 10 minute or so Slipknot 
like a really cool Slipknot in particular nice. from that show. So that's another show from this time. Um, so certainly I think there's a lot of debate about just shows from this tour that might have been a better choice than uh, right. than this one. But yeah, it seems like the Scarlet Fire was a big attraction for Dick for ultimately going with um, October 14th. Yeah. And what's interesting, like you talked about earlier, how this is sort of a a blind spot in dead history. And I mean, as you just said, there's only two other 83 shows that are released. And I can't remember the exact number, but wasn't there something like 16 shows from May 77 alone that have been yeah, just ridiculous. Uh, formally released at this point? So, And if you look at sort of, it's pretty much 81 through 85, there's only a handful of shows still to this day that have been officially released from that era. And if you read any Grateful Dead biography, I know we've both been digging into a lot of Grateful Dead books. I think a lot of times you'll find the biographer usually jumps from the 15th anniversary shows in 1980 to Jerry's Coma in 1986. And, you know, in, re- in researching this show, I was looking at it like, wait, what what went on in these six years <laughs> in between these things? Like, where's the, where's the context I crave for this podcast? It just wasn't there. Well, and I think some of that has to do, too, with, you know, there wasn't a ton of action happening in, in the dead camp in terms of, you know, just history. Like, you know, like in Dick's Picks 4, we were talking about how it seemed like every week there was this, like, earth-shattering event that happened that ended up being a major event in dead history. And then you get to the early 80s and, like, whole years go by where really not a whole lot of things uh, not a lot of momentous things are happening in terms of their history. And it seems like that's also true in terms of their sound. Like I, I was chatting a bit, uh, and this is going to be a plug, uh, with with John, this dude who runs the Save Your Face blog. And I know that we're both fans of that blog. Uh, just an excellent resource for uh, deadheads to go. And one, John basically makes compilations of of particular years, particular tours, or even just stands. Um, and he's really good at highlighting unsung periods in dead history. Like he has like a lot of great mixes from like 1994 and 1995, like, like eras that you really wouldn't want to listen to a ton of shows for, but he's listened to all the shows and he'll like pick out like the gems from all these different kind of unsung eras. And I, was just chatting with him and I was like, what shows do you like from 83 or like, do you have any big like early 80 shows? And he was just talking about how like really from like 82 to 85, he feels like the dead was pretty static, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of just their evolution, you know, which, you know, when you listen to the dead in the seventies, if you listen to them enough, it's actually pretty easy to tell a 71 show from a 72 show or a 72 show from a 73 show, you know, like right. they sound different and they're, and they're doing different things in each year. And it's just the development that they're going through is, is so rapid at that time. And that just slows way down in the early eighties. Right. Right. So there's less sort of signposts you want to pull out for official releases or biographies or what have you. Uh, there's, you know, less of an infusion of new material, I feel like. That probably has something to do with it. Uh, Jerry was certainly not as prolific as he used to be. Yeah, they, don't, they don't have any albums between Go to Heaven and In the Dark, which is 1980 to 1987. So I think they tried to record some of these, some of the In the Dark material, like in 84, but 
uh, Jerry's health was going downhill pretty fast, culminating in the coma, and it just never really got done. So there's, there's some, some solo, solo records. Yeah, yeah right. have you heard those solo records? You know, uh, Bob, Bobby and the Midnights, of course, which is uh, I would say infamous <laughs> rather than famous. Right. I was going to say like the Jerry record, uh, "Run for the Roses." I've not heard actually the one from '82. I have heard. I actually just bought Bobby and the Midnights. I found that on right. CD somewhere. How much was that CD? It wasn't any. It was like four dollars. It was really cheap. It was a really <laughs> good they, record store in my town where they, they paid they, you four dollars. <laughs> <laughs> you know the it. thing. I, the thing about Bobby and the Midnight's that I didn't realize is that he has like like uh, uh, Billy Cobham playing drums on his record, which was like a great jazz drummer. Like you know, played on a lot of fusion records in in the seventies. So he's got like a great band playing behind him, but they're playing yeah. you know bar band rock, basically. Right. So. It sounds pretty good, you know, like the sound of it, I think, is actually pretty solid, but like, you know, song wise, there's there's not a whole lot there. Um, right. So, yeah, not the most creative time for them, but they're continuing to plug away. Yeah, they're touring. Yeah, they're, it's kind of their road dog era, right? They're just yeah. play, and, playing show after show after show. And uh, one of the venues that they played a lot at this time is the Hartford Civic Center, which is. Really, I feel like like a classic jam band venue. I mean, the Dead yeah. played there the most. I mean, I think Fish has only played there about what like half a dozen times or so. Yeah, it's not even close. Yeah, but you were at one of those, so you've actually been to this venue. This is like the first venue that we've talked about that one of us has been to. Yeah, maybe the first one that still exists in some form too. No, I guess the Ohio Theater still did, right? We talked about that in the second episode. Anyway, yeah, now the heart. The Hartford Civic Center, it's now the XL Center because everything has to be some form of corporate name at this point, <laughs> but it's it's still there. It got renovated, I guess, 10 years or so ago. It used to be, you know, it was built to be the home ice of the Hartford Whalers, who are now, I think, the Carolina Hurricanes. My hockey knowledge is not great. Uh, and now there's a minor league hockey team that plays there. I have a, 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 a long-running theory that the best jam band venues are minor league hockey venues, which I think is really <laughs> only based around, like... I don't know, probably this in the Worcester Centrum or whatever it's called now. Uh, Wasn't uh, All-State Arena and uh, is oh, that right. minor league? There you go, the Chicago Wolves. Yeah, of course. Uh, so that's a classic. It's either college basketball arenas or minor league hockey arenas, like professional sports <laughs> arenas, other than Madison Square Garden, which is a, in its own neighborhood. Uh, never seemed to quite uh, fit well with, uh, with the jam band scene. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it's it's... It's very much a 70s like arena. It sounds pretty good in there. It holds about 16,000 if Wikipedia can be believed. Uh, and yeah, it's not, you know, general admission or anything, of course, but it's got like a good sort of intimate vibe compared to some of the big mega corporate arenas you'll find these days, like your United Centers or even the sort of renovated Madison Square Garden. Uh, and the Dead played there a ton. I mean, they were, of course, always big up in the Northeast, and they could kind of do... Hartford kind of gave them, like, another stop to do between uh, their Madison Square Garden run every year and their Boston Garden run every year. Uh, they played there 18 times, starting in 1977 uh, up through 1990. Uh, that 77 show is one of the, like, 16 May 77 shows that have been released. Uh, that's Two Terrapin, it's called. Uh, May 28th, 1977. Uh, yeah, and back in 1983, they were playing a two-night run there. So this Dick's Picks is the first night of two nights 
at the Hartford Civic Center. And I, and are we going to do our standard thing, like where we listen to the other shows in the run, and we argue that like one of the other shows is better <laughs> than what they released? We are Steve, because <laughs> ten fifteen. Um, because I know you listened to it first, and you're like, you should check out this show because yeah, I think it might be better. And um, I think I I don't know I I'm just gonna say that the the I I like Dick's Pick Six. I think that there is a stretch of this show of this record that's just deadly and almost derails it, but the show comes back, and and we'll talk about that later. Um, but like setlist wise, it's kind of, it kind of turns into a disaster at one point. But um, I, I mean, it's fair to say that Ten Fifteen probably has a better setlist, and that contributes to it maybe feeling like a better show. Uh, yeah. So you know, one thing I noticed kind of right away when I went into the old uh, re-listen app uh, to find sort of a see if there's a good odd source of the Dick's Pick Six show. Uh, I noticed that the night afterwards actually has a higher rating. Uh, the October 15th show is rated higher than October 14th. And, you know, the ratings in that app can be a little bit wonky, but, uh, you know, sniffing around a little bit, it does seem like a lot of people prefer October 15th and think that maybe that was the show to release because uh, it's got a really good first set. Like, I thought it doesn't look like much on paper, but the brown-eyed women and Big Railroad Blues and Let It Grow were all, like, really popped to me, which are songs that don't generally you know, grab my attention uh, completely fully. Uh, And then the second set has, it's not the comeback of St. Stephen that happened a few days earlier at Madison Square Garden, but it's only the second one played since 1977. And it gets like one of those crazy jam band crowd cheers. Like everybody just like, it's like their team won the world championship and they just (laughs) cheer for like the entirety of the song pretty much. Uh, And, you know, St. Stephen had this really brief, uh, return in 1983. It came back for only three shows. This is the second one. They played it again on Halloween, and then that was it for St. Stephen for the rest of the dead. So uh, people thought maybe, I think, for that sort of historical reason alone, that maybe that would have made a better pick. Uh, I, you know, I think the performance of St. Stephen is nothing great. It's that sort of slow arrangement of the song that doesn't really do it for me. Uh, but, it, you know, we've talked about in some other shows that there were some things that seemed like they were picked for being unique or being historical that weren't necessarily picked for performance reasons, and that might have been a good pick. Yeah. 
what what I find actually kind of really interesting here is that you know Dick lobbied from the start to release full shows uh, in Dick's picks, and it took him until the fifth volume to actually be able to do that because he finally had three discs to play with, starting with number four. Um, and it's it's kind of like unfortunate, I think, in a way that the uh, capability of doing full show releases happened at the same time that he just he started digging into this like you know more controversial, maybe more uneven Brent era. Because like really the play here, I think, would have been to take the first set of ten fifteen and put it out with the second set of ten fourteen, and that's probably the best possible release. Uh, but I don't know. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and can we just say too, ten fifteen starts with "Feel Like a Stranger." Exactly. So there I'm you would have got your soaky crazy night. Yeah, I'm already. I'm already ab- yeah, I th- yeah. I, I could see that. Um, and uh, and if you're going to release the first set too, yeah, we can drop. Da- keep your day job. We can drop that because <laughs> that that ends both uh, first sets. <laughs> yeah, they played uh, it both nights for both yeah. of these shows. Uh, but. I'll leave it at that. We're going to be kicking keep your day job enough, I think, later on in this episode. <laughs> um, so, so let's set the scene here uh, for again for the show. It's the fall of 1983, and as we were saying before, that uh, you know the dead. I mean, the dead were always in their own world, but I think as we've argued in previous episodes, that there were there were certainly periods where they seemed closer to what was going on in the rest of the rock world. Uh, than they did in 1983. I, I feel like in 83, like this early 80s period, um, you know, before they had their resurgence in the late 80s with Touch of Grey and became, they became a stadium band. This really seems like a, a, about as far as they were ever going to get from relevance or mainstream acceptance or, you know, really any connection to like what was going on in the rest of the world of music. And, and just to illustrate that, you know, the number one song in America, the week of this show, Total Eclipse of the Heart by mm-hmm. Bonnie yeah. Tyler, one of the great karaoke songs of all time, <laughs> uh, written by Jim Steinman of Bad Out of Hell fame, yeah. and uh, I think we, I think we both will are defenders of Bad Out of Hell. Oh yeah, uh, sure. Well, you because you are like a, a student of rock operas. Yeah, I wouldn't really uh, defend it as like on rock opera terms because I don't really feel like it holds together uh, as a rock opera. I don't know. I have very strict definitions of what a rock opera <laughs> is and is that. not. It is it is a concept album, but not a rock opera, is what I would you say. You got your monocle out for this part. You, you yeah. have your monocle out here talking about rock operas. Exactly. No, yeah, yeah. I shined it up. But I, but it's a fun, over the top, cheesy seventies rock album. I think it's pretty right. irresistible. And I love and, I love Bruce Springsteen and I love Queen. And that record is a combination, basically, of Bruce and, and Queen. I think at one point I described Meatloaf as like uh, Drama Club Springsteen, where it's like, <laughs> right. like now I guess Springsteen has been on Broadway, but it's kind of like the version, a Broadway version of Springsteen. I even found, this was my, I felt like my one opportunity to search Grateful Dead Jim Steinman on Google and uh, see if there was anything <laughs> there. And I found an interview with Jim Steinman where he just, not to Steve Miller levels of talking trash, but he makes it very clear that the Grateful Dead were not his thing, which I kind of, you know, it makes total sense. He said yeah. something like, what does he say? He's like, I don't know, I'm just going to paraphrase it, but he was like disgusted that you couldn't tell the difference between the members of the Grateful Dead and their audience. Like they, they looked right. and dressed exactly the same. He thought that, you know, a rock and roll band should be like a stage performer and look like something totally unreal that you would never see like, you know, uh, in the row next to you, 
So everything he put on was like this big, huge production. And Meatloaf was like this character that was like larger than life. And every song was 15 minutes long, but not in a Grateful Dead way. And like, a, you know, set closing uh, pre-intermission showstopper way. And it's funny, like, I, I don't think I knew Total Eclipse of the Heart was Steinman until like maybe a few years ago. But once you figure that out, you're like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely it's a meat love song with a with a lady singing instead <laughs> yeah i'm willing to bet that jerry would have hated bad out of hell but i oh, think sure. bob might have dug it i could see i could see weird maybe getting into it oh yeah you know because he has that side of himself um you know other big uh i mean pop music at this time was basically just dominated by synthesizers you have like air supply was big at this time spawn du ballet uh, you know, the safety dance, uh, the fix, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Billy Joel was, was really big at this time. Stray Cats, obviously not synthesizer, but, um, of that MTV kind of fake rockabilly thing that they were doing. Right. Um, at that time. It's interesting too, when you, when you think about 83 in a broader sense, um, and looking at the contemporaries of the Grateful Dead from the sixties and how they were doing you know, like Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and how, I mean, Bob Dylan put it, put out Infidels around this time, which I think is actually like a, a pretty strong record, even though sonically, I think it is problematic. Uh, Songwriting-wise, I think he was still writing good songs, but he, he was about to go into a period of very confused-sounding records sonically. Uh, Neil Young... Uh, it was a weird period for him, although to some degree that was by design. Yeah. Uh, because he hated Dave, David Geffen. He was <laughs> fucking with David Geffen at this time, basically. I mean, this, but this was like right after he put out Trans, uh, which uh, whether you look at that record as a misfire or as a misunderstood masterpiece, certainly it was not commercially successful and, and, and he was slipping into certainly at least a commercially down period. Um Joni Mitchell, I'm trying to remember the name of her record. She put out this like new wave record. I think it's like, uh, what's it called? It's like, I'm going to Google it. It's like, uh, it has fast in the title. I can't remember the title of it. It is called Wild Things Run Fast. That came out in 1982. That was sort of like her new wavy sounding record. <laughs> and it's what's always fascinating to me about this time is that like the most successful uh, of the classic rock bands in the early 80s were, uh, you know, prog rock bands like Genesis, Yes, the Moody Blues. Like they were all able to remake themselves as like synth driven pop groups. And then you had like Chicago yeah, coming back strong at this time, being just this over the top power ballad band. Uh, so it was a really a time where all those people. We're trying to figure out how to make it in a new decade. And the dead strategy was basically just to do their own thing and not engage at all, um, which I think in retrospect was a wise strategy for them. Um, but at the time, you know, I'm sure just made them look to some people like like a relic or a dinosaur of like a, of, an, of another time. Right. You know? Well, and that's uh, why like the Dylan and the dead tour happens right in 1987 because it's kind of pre the touch of gray revival for the dead too so it was almost like two sort of struggling 60s acts pairing up to do a big tour together 
you know, much in the same way. You get all these like weird 90s, you know, reunions pairing up today uh, trying to I mean, I think the tickets. Dead was like resurgent at that. I mean, I think the Dead were probably more popular. I mean, the Dead were more popular as a touring attraction. Than Dylan. In 87 than, than, than Dylan would have yeah. been. You know, Dylan, you know, he had just done that tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Right. And now he was touring with the Dead. So he was relying on, in, in many ways, like more popular touring acts mm-hmm. to keep him afloat at that time. Um, one thing that we have to do a callback on right now is in our first episode, we were talking about like whether Jerry was, you know, if he would have been a fan of prog rock, like if he would have been into Genesis or, or Yes. And I think we said that, like we speculated that, like we didn't, we we assume they probably would not like Genesis or Yes, but that he might like Jethro Tull. <laughs> right. I think I said, but you actually found evidence of Jerry not liking Genesis and Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's not. There's not a whole lot of substance there, but in uh, on the Great Dead Essays blog, there is a very long, exhaustive post trying to like figure out what would have been in Jerry's record collection over the years, which. You know, God bless that guy for doing this. Uh, there's something like 400 references <laughs> in this like enormous blog post. Uh, but I did stumble upon one. It was an interview from 1977 where he was asked if he liked Genesis or Yes, and he replied, "Not particularly." <laughs> End quote. So Jerry shuts shuts it down in, in two words uh, that that was not his thing. So. Well, question settled. I'm, gl- I'm glad we were able to. We we answered that definitively. <laughs> yeah. It just took us five episodes to answer that. Um, the number one album in the country the week of this show was Synchronicity by The Police. Rob, do you like The Police? I do. And honestly, like, I, I agree with everything you just said about this is like the point where the dead were the farthest away from the mainstream. But I do feel like The Police are strangely closely tied to the dead or sort of sort of like uh like have some kinship even at this stage because i I mean it it feels like there was something this is like the point in the 80s where you kind of have like pop reggae becoming a thing right like ub40 is probably like within this sort of zone as well or like i'm trying to think of what else like bobby mcferrin (laughs) (laughs) it's a little later but like well even like past Past the duchy on the left hand side, yeah, you know, or, like that was a hit single at this time, right, yeah. and like the Clash, you know, mm-hmm. the Clash were pretty popular. Yeah, Madness, Madness was big at this time. Thing. Like, so, like, you know, I although I mean, Synchronicity is like the least reggae ish record that they did. I mean, that's like them, you know, that's like Every Breath You Take mm-hmm. and King of Pain, yeah. and it was more of like a stadium rock. Like this, that's like the least funky that the Police were, you know, like just making like straight on stadium rock. And I love the police. That's that's not my favorite police record, right? Although I love the singles, um, but I tend to prefer what you're talking about, like the funkier records, like the Zenyatta Mundatas and mm-hmm. Regatta de Blocks, right. you know, that came out a few years earlier. Well, and then you know, it's about ten years later, ninety three, summer ninety three. Sting ends up opening up a handful of shows for the Dead. I think it was eleven shows that summer. Uh, and you can actually find video of Jerry sitting in on a few Sting songs, including uh, Walking on the Moon, which is one of the more, you know, sort of pop reggae police songs. So oh, I yeah. feel like, you know, it, a good it's one. not a long walk from, you know, sort of how Scarlet Fire sounds in this show to sort of the police's popped, poppy, rocky version of, 
of reggae, even if it was getting a little more towards the pop rock side by this point. But yeah, the police were apparently huge because King of Pain is up there in the singles chart. Synchronicity is number one. It's higher than Thriller, which, as I said, had been out for almost a year. But I just think of Thriller being top of the charts for like this entire year. But yeah, some some things could actually beat it out. Well, and I also feel like if we're going to talk about jam connections between the police and the dead, we also got to give a shout out to Stuart Copeland and right. uh, joining a band with Trey, Oysterhead. Uh, so there's another jammy connection uh, between the police and uh, and the dead. Another band that I want to talk about too that um, was active in 83, and they were actually on tour doing a very historic tour at the same time that the dead were on their fall tour. Uh, a band from the new wave world that wasn't really associated with jam band music, but I think in retrospect is, and that's the talking heads. Uh, They were on their stop making sense tour uh, while the dead were playing uh, their fall shows in 83. And I looked it up. They were actually in Tallahassee on October 14th, 1983. Uh, This tour of course preceded the film, the classic Jonathan Demme concert film that came out in 84. Uh, but I've, I'm pretty sure that they were doing that show like across the country, you know, like where David Burns coming out, playing acoustic guitar, psycho killer. And they gradually build up into that big band. And it's just this all out dance party by the end. And, um, I think in 83, no one was contextualizing the talking heads at all with the grateful dead. Um, I think a lot of music critics would have probably said that they were the antithesis of the, of the Grateful Dead. You know, the Talking right. Heads were regarded to be this sort of forward thinking, very hip, very of the moment band. But when we, when we look back, the Talking Heads have become arguably as much of a jam touchstone as the Grateful Dead have. I mean, in, in a way, I, I feel like there's a lot of jam bands and if we want to use the use fish as an example, fish has more in common with talking heads musically than they do with the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also have to mention that David Gans, noted Grateful Dead expert and author, he wrote a book about talking heads that came out in '85. So clearly, there were people like him who had a foot in the jam camp. Who I. I'd like to hear him talk about this. I, I imagine that he heard something in his mind that probably connected these two bands in a way that like wasn't apparent to other people maybe in the early right. 80s. Yeah, and we talked about this last episode with uh, sort of the, uh, I don't know, like around drum space and I think in parts of the Estimated Profit Jam in that 79 show that it, it suddenly sounded to me like the talking heads in a very surprising way <laughs> and right. that it was almost the talking heads before they were the talking heads as they would come to be in sort of this 83 stop making sense era with like you know very like sort of african influence polyrhythmic uh rhythms and like a very uh i don't know more of like a funky style than the sort of new waver post-punk style they started out in so like now i feel like stripped of all the sort of cultural baggage that probably kept them in different camps at this time like it makes all the sense in the world but like you know like i have a good buddy who's who's a little bit older than us and i i'm pretty sure he saw both the grateful dead and the talking heads 
around this time. And he, I think he also saw the police around this time. So there was a, I think if you were a college student in 1983, you probably listened to all this, but right. maybe you wore, you wore different outfits uh, <laughs> to, to each concert. Like you exchanged your tie dye for your, I don't know, your rolled up jeans and tank top, <laughs> whatever the talking heads fans that, you know, stop making sense. Doesn't show the audience famously. So it's hard to know what people wore to those shows. I bet there was some works. There were probably some works out there, you know. At, oh, I'm at sure. the make, you know, some works lurking around at the, you know. I think I think the movie is shot at the Pange the Pantages Theater in L.A. The stop making yeah, sense. it's all it's all L.A. shows. Yeah, so, yeah, so. I should have said they swapped out their tie dye shirts for their big suits, but I, I totally <laughs> blew it on that joke. But I got I got there eventually, so we're, right. we're there. So the number one movie in America was Never Say Never Again. James yeah. Bond, where they brought Connery back. I've never seen that one. I haven't either. Like it's, it looks weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It was like this kind of a stunty James Bond movie. Um, I, I, cause the the movie that was number one uh, before that was The Big Chill, which I think um, it kind of speaks to what we were talking about before, where we were talking about all these '60s artists trying to make a go in the early 80s and in some cases struggling to figure out like what they were going to be. And mm-hmm. it seemed like that was in the air at this time where the goddamn baby boomers, man, they just had to make it about <laughs> themselves. They always made it about themselves, man. Our identity yeah. crisis. And they have the big chill. I've never seen the big chill. I have no desire. Have you seen it? I have no desire to see it. It just seems no. annoying. But maybe it's good. Not- I don't know. It's another one. I think I already mentioned this in another episode that I remember my parents having taped off of HBO, but yeah, not not the kind of thing that like a uh, four year old Rob would have popped in to watch. <laughs> uh, and number one uh, TV show was Dallas. You ever watch any? I, I I I've watched some Dallas. I I I enjoy watching old school Dallas with Larry. Is that Hagman. the one with Jr. Or is that? Dynasty. Oh yeah, I always get those two confused. Uh, no, J- no, Jr. No, is no. Dallas. Yeah, Dynasty, I think, is like is is just trash. I think Dallas is actually like a pretty good show. <laughs> like okay. it was, it was a soap, but it was um, like Larry Hagman. I think is actually like a really good actor, and yeah. his performance is Jr. I mean, basically, that whole show is is just Jr. sipping whiskey and like cackling to himself, you know, because he has right. some scheme that he's cooking up. Against. Until he gets shot, right? Yeah, who sh- right. Who 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 did shoot Jr.? Can we spoil uh, that after? Yeah, have I, you got that far? I I know. I, no, I've seen that, and I can't remember who it is. Not really relevant to I the think, Grateful Dead, so we probably don't need to get I think into it was, that too deep. It was Maggie Simpson, right? Yeah. Thank you. 
Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Uh, okay, well, so let's get into this show. Um, first disc, first song of the first set. F- a familiar song, if you were listening to our Dick's Picks Volume 5 episode, they begin with Alabama Getaway. Alabama Getaway was in the uh, was in the first set of Dick's Picks 5. It's a little bit deeper into the set, not a... A set starter and, I, and at that time the, sh- the song hadn't been released yet it ended up getting released the following year on go to heaven so by this time you know th- we're three years past go to heaven so this song is firmly established in the set list and again it speaks to your point earlier about how not a lot of fresh material at this time so <laughs> there were a lot of shows i imagine that were kicking off with alabama getaway at this time and it is a good yeah. uh set starter i mean it's it's a good song um what do you think about jerry's voice and jerry's tone yeah i mean this jumped out to me right away that like jerry i mean you can almost hear how much heavier he is (laughs) right and I, 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 you know, I don't want to, I don't want to body shame Jerry Garcia, uh, but the the man did put on some pounds over the eighties and obviously put on enough pounds and did enough, uh, illicit substances to put himself in a coma a couple of years after this show. So, uh, you know, it, he just very much sounds less healthy <laughs> all around, which it takes a little getting used to with this show. What I will say is that, you know, the knock on, you know, maybe later in the 80s and definitely into the 90s is that there's a lot of shows where he doesn't sound very engaged. Like, he sort of has flashes of where he, like, has the passion of old, but there's a lot of shows where he's very passive or sounds a little, like, distracted when he's singing. Uh, That's not the case with this show. Like, sure, he sounds a little heavier and a little older, but... He's very much into it, and like one thing I enjoyed is that the sort of classic Jerry forgetting the lyrics moment in Alabama Getaway. I think he basically blanks on a whole verse and just mumbles it, but he mumbles it like really enthusiastically. <laughs> like he is like he sells it really well. Where if you know you weren't listening to a soundboard uh, twenty years later, you would never notice <laughs> that that he totally blew it. So it's kind of like uh, like a little preview of some sadder times to come. But at least like uh, for this particular night, he was like he was on. Thank you. 
Yeah, I, I would say that, I mean, I think he still sounds pretty good. My feeling is that it's just a little bit of autopilot. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure this is a song they had played a lot at this point. And because there's not new material coming in and, and they're not really changing up a whole lot, you know, sonically in these years, um, it just feels like, okay, we're easing into the show with this yeah. song. And it, and it has that kind of superficial shot of adrenaline aspect to it. But um, it, it very much feels like a preamble. Because I will say that I think Jerry sounds really engaged, especially later on in the show. And there's some great Jerry moments in this gig. But, you know, this is this is getting, this is limbering up, <laughs> you know, this song. He's stretching out the muscles. Um, go, speaking of stretching out the muscles... We go into our second song, Greatest Story Ever Told. Um, and this is a song uh, from Bob Weir's first solo record, Ace, which I've heard described as like a de facto Grateful Dead record because like everyone plays on that record. Right. And all of those songs ended up, I mean, I think with the exception of maybe a couple tracks, they ended up becoming live standards for the dead. Uh, you know, like Cassidy's on that record, mm-hmm. um, and uh, like Black Throated Wind is on that record, I and mean, there's a lot of classic songs on there. Um, and this again, it feels like okay, we just played Alabama Getaway. It's an upbeat song. You know, we're trying to get engaged <laughs> with this show, and this feels like another kind of like okay, we're still limbering up, right? Type song. And we're you know, getting not into. particularly outstanding, but it's all right. It's solid. Yeah, and like we were saying last show, now we're firmly into the Jerry Bob alternating era. <laughs> so, and that that actually it goes off it goes off book a little bit in the second set, which is part of why it's an interesting second set, I think. But yeah, it, when Jerry and Bob are alternating songs, sometimes they'll do this where they're like. Like Jerry plays his opener and then Bob wants to play his opener. So you kind of get a double opener. Um, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, this is one with where, you know, Brent's like sort of backing vocalist role is really <laughs> prominent, I would say. Uh, and, he, you know, he. this is a song that I've heard a lot with Donna and not as much with Brent. And man, does he come in... Uh, not only hot but wrong <laughs> at the start of this this performance but, but you know i kind of love it like it's like it's almost like another like you know bit we should have done from the start that maybe we could get going is like dick's picks moments where like this is the kind of thing that never would have shown up on any other live album <laughs> if they weren't committed to this warts and all approach but yeah uh brent kind of comes in with a with a screech <laughs> on this one well and you know we talked about you know the Brent era and 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 just the hallmarks that he brings to the band, and it is interesting that like even for an '83 show, I feel like Dick picked a show where Brent still isn't as prominent as he was in other shows. Like yeah. if if we had started with a feel like a stranger, we would have had real Brent backing <laughs> vocals. You know yeah. the the much quoted "Silky Silky Crazy Nights" you know interlude at the end, and of course later on in the '80s. You know, Brent was singing lead on songs. Yeah. You know, so he was much more prominent. And his keyboards were much more prominent, even. Uh, I mean, he's still, you know, compared to the 79 show that we did in 5, um, I, I think Brent is making his presence felt more yeah. in this show than he was in 79. But he's still relatively restrained 
from like what he will become in the late eighties. Like, I think I talked about this in five, but if you want to hear full blown Brent, you know, put on without a net, you know, like compare that to some of these Dick's Pick shows that we've done uh, with him, you know, like, it, like if you think it's too much Brent in six, <laughs> you're not going to be able to tolerate without a net or any of those like the late eighties shows. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's like it's. I think it's a little bit suspicious that you know Dick has picked two shows now that doesn't have a a Brent solo song somewhere in the set. And in '79, there definitely were Brent songs in rotation. I'm not sure, you know, what sort of songs he was singing in '83, but I, I imagine he had some. So it reminds me a little bit of like the suspicious lack of Donna in the first couple volumes, and I wonder if you know speculating of course but maybe dick had a little bit of a uh, a bias against brent singing lead vocals and managed to pick some song pick some shows that would would avoid it so i don't know maybe it's a it's a case for brent erasure we can we can hash it out online if that's something that really happened but yeah you know it's he's very he's very present in this show but never quite gets like a feature like he would later on yeah, he uh yeah, Dick was not respectful to the new members coming in and adding backing vocals. There's this conspiracy against the backing vocalists <laughs> with uh which, you know, a lot of deadheads would probably support. Yeah. Although I think with I th- although I think with Brent less so. I think yeah. that Brent um had a lot more support than mm-hmm. Donna did, unfortunately. Um going to the third song here. I think a um, a truly grateful dead, a truly great grateful dead song. Although I guess it's technically a solo Jerry Garcia joint because it originally appeared on his '76 solo record Reflections. But mm-hmm. anyway, they love each other. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great. I, I've I always loved this song. This is always a good first set song. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a nice song to get there. It's never going to be like the highlight highlight of the show, but it's it's always welcome. I think. And it's interesting too listening you know how this song evolved i mean i guess it was basically in this slower arrangement for most of its history although if you listen to some 73 shows when the song was first coming into the dead world they do play it faster and there is a dead show i believe it's dick's picks 19 where they you can hear the fast version um in the first set of that show and i'm not sure how often they played Mm -hmm. it in the fast arrangement um, but I, I mean, generally I like it in this slower, more soulful, uh, you know, uh, or, you know, pace. Um, but the fast one's pretty cool too, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The slower one, you know, it fits Brent's style well too. And one thing I noticed is that he's sticking to organ a lot more in this show than he did in the 79 show. Right. So you don't Which really is... have that like tinkly electric piano all over, though it does pop up Definitely a lot in the a second plus. set. He's great uh, with but the, the, organ. the organ always just sounds so much more well integrated with the dead sound. I think it's like I can I can grow to like the piano tones and the synth tones, but the organ, it's like I don't even have to really work that hard. I'm like, yeah, this sounds good. Well, you know, again, like for people you know who appreciate '80s dead, I think that is one of the things that's cool about this era is that you know, as great as Keith was in the '70s, he's just playing piano. And Mm -hmm. there's only so much you can do when you just play piano. And when Brent does happen to hit upon 
cool instrumental tones, it does add a lot to the music for me. Like I like hearing organ on there. I like hearing just the instrumental shadings that that Brett can bring to the band, um, just because he has a you know a wider array of toys to play with, uh, you know, in his rig. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's, that's cool to hear for sure. Uh, so after that, you know, we have a nice little slow song after two, you know, would be show starter up upbeat songs. And then we go into a very familiar double shot from Bob <laughs> of cowboy songs, Mama Tried, uh, into Big River. And, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> we've heard this a million times. I feel like we've heard this a lot even in our series so far. Yeah, it can't be more than six, but somehow it feels like <laughs> a dozen. <laughs> yeah, it's just like... Uh, you know, we talk so much about the ever-changing sound of the dead and how they were a different band and all these different eras. And the one thing you can always count on is that Bobby's going to put together a couple cowboy songs and sing them in the first set. And maybe they get a little disco-y. By now, they've, the, the disco is in the rearview mirror. and They're just kind of like, yep, here's some, here's some country covers from Bob. Well, and this is foreshadowing like what's going to happen later in this set because there's some real problematic choices for for song <laughs> selection. And I will say, like one of the things I like about the '80s and and going into the '90s is the diversity of song uh, of set lists is is pretty great in this era. Like mm-hmm. they were playing a really wide variety of songs, obviously because they had a bigger songbook to draw from at that point. Um, so it's a little weird and disappointing that this show ended up getting picked because there's some really weird choices. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the Mama Tried Big River here. But again, it's just sort of like, okay, you know, we've heard this a lot and there's not really anything fresh being brought to the table there. So, you know, I feel like this set so far is like, okay, but it's a, you know, maybe not terribly exciting. But then we get into the next song and it, it's a, it's definitely a relief for me to hear this song because it's one of my favorite dead songs mm-hmm. of all time, and that and that's Althea. And uh, it's the first appearance of Althea in Dick's Picks. There was no Althea in, in Dick's Picks 5. And, um, you know, it, it, it's funny to talk about this song. I was thinking about this because, you know, we, we've talked about a song like, say, Tennessee Jed, for instance, which is just a mid-tempo song that goes about eight or nine minutes, has a pretty simple guitar riff. And I've never been a big Tennessee Jed fan. But I could hear someone arguing that, like, how can you knock Tennessee Jed and defend a song like Althea, which doesn't seem to have a much different structure, necessarily, from a song like Tennessee Jed. It, on paper, it doesn't seem to be doing anything all that dynamic musically i will say that althea does offer more space for guitar solos there's one in the first half of the song and there's of course there's the big famous guitar solo that comes at the end um but i don't know for me this song uh there's a lot of things i love about it that guitar riff though is i don't know what it is about it because it, it is it's such a minimal riff but it's so pleasing to hear it, it's one of those riffs it's one of the riffs in the Jerry Garcia like songbook that I, I feel like I could hear a hundred times, or I, I mean I know I've heard it a hundred times already, and not get sick of it. And I don't know why, because he's not doing yeah. anything terribly, you know, amazing with it. But it's so pleasing 
there's something so pleasing about it. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a great riff. I wrote down in my notes, I called it a world-weary chugle. So, you know, there's, <laughs> right. there's, there's definitely like a chugly thing going on with the dead for the first, you know, decade, 15 years. And that kind of calms down here. And in some ways that doesn't really like benefit their sound. But I feel like Althea is like, Althea is like the song that is the best possible version of what the 80s dead were trying to do to my ears. Like it's, it's an older dead, it's a calmer dead, but it still has that, you know, very like lyrical, uh, Jerry quality to it. And also an interesting sort of rhythmic structure. And, you know, it's got a really good melody. It's got great Hunter lyrics. It's like one of the, you know, sort of last great, well, I mean, Hunter had a lot of good 90s songs too that he wrote with the dead when they, they just happened to all be about death <laughs> at that point. <laughs> well, yeah. And they're kind of a bummer to hear. Uh, but Althea, it's like, I mean, maybe Althea is about death too. I just haven't looked hard enough. But it's got kind of a nice sto- storytelling bit to it. And it's like, it's, it's nice. Yeah, the storytelling aspect to it, it, it actually made me, it reminds me of, uh, like in my mind, I link this in a way with Ruben and Charisse, which mm-hmm. um, is from jerry's 78 solo record cats under the stars another one of my very favorite garcia hunter compositions and in a way althea is ruben and charise in in reverse because ruben and charise is about a guy trying to find a woman that is lost and in althea it's almost it's like about a guy trying to like get rid of a woman in a way you know but they're both very much they feel more adult um yeah so, you know, speaking to what you were saying about like the grown up dead, there's something it, in a way too, like they remind me of like Bob Dylan's songs in the mid seventies, like blood on the tracks, desire era, where he was writing mm-hmm. story songs about like adult relationships and like the passage of yeah. time and, 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 and what divorce. that does in divorce <laughs> and, you know, falling in love and falling out of love and like what, what the passage of time does to relationships. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and there's, you know, it's not like the cowboy songs that they were, that, they were writing together in the early 70s you know which are wonderful right. songs but they seem more like like man's man single guy song You and I were talking about this before the episode. Althea too reminds me a little of like Dire Straits, which might seem mm-hmm. like a weird thing to say because Dire Straits is obviously so influenced by the Grateful Dead. 
but I wonder if in some way Jerry heard what he does in Dire Straits' music and reflected it back into his own music. Because like that, that kind of easygoing chugle that you're talking about feels like a little Dire Straitsy to me. And, and we did some research and we found that like Jerry was a Dire Straits fan, which is not surprising at all but like he saw them in concert right around this time and yeah and it's and he was a fan of them at a time where it seemed like he did not listen to a lot of new right. bands so it's sort of a even more of an endorsement of dire straits and even more evidence that he, he might have pulled some influence for them like the sort of companion piece to that lengthy dead essays blog post about Jerry's record collection is there's also one about all the trying to figure out all the concerts that Jerry <laughs> attended. And there was like an interview where he talked about going to see dire straits, uh, I think sort of early in the eighties, um, a little earlier than this and certainly earlier than like brothers in arms, like peak commercially dire straits of course but uh yeah it's like i can i, I can hear it too I, I mean that riff feels a little bit like a nopla riff in some ways and you know I, i've always thought touch of gray is kind of dire oh, straits totally. too totally. so you know when the dead were looking for you know just any kind of model for how they could possibly pull off a commercial crossover yeah, it totally seems like they would have looked to what Dire Straits managed to do, uh, becoming, you know, for a time, one of the biggest rock bands in the world. And Dire Straits, I think, had that, you know, they they had the the spaciness of the dead, you know, certainly in Not Force mm-hmm. Playing, they had that, but they were also um, an arena rock band, and they had the discipline of that, and they were, they had more of a bar band feel, I think, to them than the dead ever did, but the dead started taking on some of those attributes themselves as the 80s unfolded and they started playing bigger rooms. Uh, and n- not rooms, I mean stadiums uh, by right. the end of the decade. So, yeah, I could see that being an influence on them. Um, and making uh, making videos, too. What, uh, what if the dead had made, like, a computer-animated video? <laughs> like uh, the... Uh, Money for nothing video. Uh, like, can you imagine like a a, a boxy polygon uh, Jerry well, Garcia? What's even, it actually wouldn't be too far off from the video we're going to discuss in a few minutes. What's maybe. even funnier to me because you know because like that's the most memorable Dire Straits video, but like there's also the video for Walk of Life where it's just sports mm. bloopers. Have you seen that? <laughs> is that what it is? It's just yeah. I must have yeah yeah. Like I don't like I think the band. I think it intercuts footage of the band. With sports bloopers, <laughs> like which like people have... getting hit, like yeah. people getting hit in the balls. With... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think yeah, exactly. It's just like people screwing up. I think it's mostly baseball bloopers, but I would have loved to see like a video uh, with the dead where they're playing. You know, I don't know. So yeah, like some in the dark song, and then it's like sports bloopers. It's like you know, <laughs> Bo Jackson breaking up bat over his knee, and then they show Jerry Garcia doing <laughs> guitar solo or something. That would have been great. Um, so we go from the sublime to the ridiculous in this set. <laughs> and by the way, like, I think, okay, because, you know, and I've alluded to this a couple times already in this episode, but I feel like after Althea, which to me is the peak of the first set, um, it just goes off the rails after this. Uh, it, it, certainly in terms of song selection for me. It goes pretty bad uh, in the back half of the first set. So we have C.C. Ryder coming up next. Second show in a row with C.C. Ryder. 
And I think in the in Dick's Picks Five, that was like one of the first times that they'd ever played CC Writer. So there was a little bit of energy evident in that performance. Um, this one's pretty dire for me, I got to say. Even though, like, okay, so because apparently there's a story about Bob having a new slide. <laughs> right. So if you go back to that Trey, Trey Bob uh, Connecticut panel that we talked about at the, at the start, um, the MC, the moderator for the panel is like, you know, you've played thousands of concerts. Surely you can't, you you don't remember the one that uh, Trey is talking about. And Bob, you know, well, first he, he complains about the monitors, <laughs> which is like a great, a, a perfect like Bob, like move even on you know a q a he's like trying to get the sound just exactly perfect uh but then he's like i do remember this show because i got a new glass slide uh before we performed this night and he talks about what did you, you said something about this steve like it was an especially hot sound check yeah they had I a hot sound check because <laughs> <laughs> like i think he, he had a slide and then jerry got his slide so they just bust yeah, out slide and they riffs. Some like Hawaiian song. And <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he calls it a hula nightmare, which I can, <laughs> I can, I can only imagine based on the slide guitar. I mean that you know Bobby well, slide. I'd rather hear Hawaiian. Uh, nightmare we we talk about finding. Story yeah. Um, we had a particularly hot sound check. You know, I think we're going to need to turn these monitors down just a little bit because. You know just try pushing that mic down to your chest a little bit. Maybe that'll work. No, but anyway, <clears throat> so uh, we had a particularly hot sound check. We were, uh, I had a new slide, and uh, between tunes that we were doing at the sound check, I, I started playing Yellow Bird. You know, you all know that. And, um, and so Jerry grabbed his slide. And, uh, and he starts, he put a, a third on top of it. He, he started harmonizing. And so we had these, uh, these twin uh, slides and it was, it was uh, sort of a hula nightmare. <laughs> and, and so, the, you know, the rest of the guys just sort of, you know, they, they grabbed it and started playing it. And we had all the, these huge security guys. They were just rolling up. It was, it, was a, it was one of those halcyon moments. And then we went on and... Uh, and uh, we went, came back and played the show, and it was a hot night. And I guess we we uh, we took the tapes and 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 put out a, a, a issued a, uh, an archival recording of uh, <clears throat> of that show that you were at. That yeah, really, yeah. So we can hear you being converted in yeah. the background. <laughs> we talk about finding like a defender for every dead thing. I would I this. This might be the ultimate challenge. We talked about like walking blues would be a tough thing to find a defender for, but I, oh, I, I want to find the person out there right now who's who is the person who is like right a, a big fan of Bobby slide guitar because I want to talk to that person. And uh, no, I mean there's someone there's someone who's pissed off right now because we're we're distant CC yeah. writer. Like, hey man, the the real dead fans <laughs> love it when they play CC yeah. writer and Tennessee Jed back to back. You know. Which, because that's what they do in this set. They, they, they play CC Rider and they go into Tennessee Jed. <laughs> so we're talking about almost 20 minutes of like just slow ass music uh, that uh, just does not have a lot of energy for me. And I got to say, you know, we've taken shots at Tennessee Jed <laughs> in, this, in this pod. You know, we've taken shots at other dead songs. Mississippi Half Step, 
Weather Report suite, passionate defenders out there got very angry about our comments about that. I feel like there hasn't been as much passionate defenses of Tennessee <laughs> Jed. And I may be tempting fate by by talking about this right now because there probably will the, the the Tennessee Jed fans will come out of the out of the woodwork. I know our pal Amars Hastry, who by the way he wrote our theme song. Everyone always asks after every episode who wrote our theme song. It's Amar. He's a genius. He does great music for us. I know that he made a case for Tennessee Jed, the the guitar solo in Tennessee Jed, always being different and for him always being a really interesting solo by Jerry. So I'll take his word for that because Amar is a great musician and he knows more about that stuff than either one of us would. But just as a music fan, this double shot is pretty deadly for me. I will say, though, that I did not take a bathroom break. I did sit through it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you bathroom break either one of these songs? Uh, I wrote under CC Writer. Can't bathroom break hard enough. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I I think maybe I like Tennessee Judd a little bit more than you. I mean, I don't want to hear a hundred of them, which in some eras yeah. you just hear it like every show, and it gets a little tiresome that way. But uh, yeah, this would probably be a bathroom break, and also maybe I'll wait in line to get a beer and. Maybe I'll chat with my buddy out in the concourse and make my way back in. I mean, it. I talked about how the the first set the following night hit me a lot harder than this one. And this is the point in the set the next night where they're getting into just like a really good big railroad blues. Uh, and then uh, a pretty awesome extended Let It Grow. And, you know, we talked about how my weather report suite take was controversial. And like that... Uh, I, I think I I maintained at that point, and I will again, that I, I really like the Let It Grow part of Weather Report Suite. It's just the lead up to it that I find a little tedious. Uh, and yeah, the 1015 Let It Grow is a really good version and one where Brent sounds really great on it. And yeah, it, there's a that set ends in like a fireball of energy, uh, whereas this one is really kind of limps to the set break. So after this, they play Hell in a Bucket. And... <laughs> You know, after taking some shots at Tennessee Jed, I'm gonna defend Hell in a Bucket. I kind of, I've always kind of liked this song. Uh, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, it's it's pure. I mean, this is like, this is the Grateful Dead at their like beer commercial, you know, at their most beer commercial sounding. You know, it, this sounds like it should be in a Michelob yeah. ad from uh, you know 1988. <laughs> um, but I've always liked this song. This this, this is a song by Bob and Brent. Uh, yeah. a, a very un, uh, a unique songwriting tandem in uh, Dead History. I, uh, one reason I like this song too, I, I, I think about uh, my friend Jake, who's one of the hosts of Time Crisis. Um, shout out to Time Crisis, by the way. He told me a story about how he saw Dead & Co. a couple years ago. I think it was at Dodger Stadium. And he was excited for the show. And then they started off with Hell in a Bucket. And he got like really angry that they started off with hell in a bucket. It just like put him in a bad mood. <laughs> but I, th- I think they recovered <laughs> after that. Um, I think another thing too about hell in a bucket that always makes me smile is I think about the music video for it. And we we're talking about like, yeah, right. Like if the dead did a sports bloopers episode, uh, a music video, uh, the hell in a bucket video is insane. Like, yeah, it, it's basically just like a literal interpretation of the lyrics. <laughs> Like they're in a, <laughs> extremely literal. Yeah, like they're in a biker bar, and uh, Bob is wearing like a Miami Vice suit, 
and he's like <laughs> and he's like with a woman like sort of like a dominatrix type woman who's who's fighting him and like uh, like Mickey and uh, Mickey and Bill are dressed up as devils I guess because of the rhythm devils yeah. thing um, they're literal rhythm devils yeah right and Dick is actually in the video too Dick Lavala's in like the first yeah. scene like in the bar you could kind of very first shot you could see him kind of lurking on the edges and like on one hand, it's like a terrible video, but at least it's not pretentious and it's not self-serious. Like you watch it and you're like, well, <laughs> they're just fucking around, you know, like, and they're having a good time right. and it's corny, it's cheesy, well, but like they're not, at least it's not like they're, they're not trying to be profound in this video. Yeah. I mean, some of them are having a good time. <laughs> one, one thing I appreciated about it was that. Jerry clearly said, like, I will appear in this video, but I will sit on a bar stool and play my guitar. I will not dress up as anything from Bob's silly song. Whereas everybody else has to play a role. So, uh, yeah. So Jerry put his foot down, I think. I think he's only the beginning and the very end. Yeah. It ends in the biker bar again because I think one of the last shots is actually Parrish like getting mad at a pinball machine. (laughs) (laughs) So they they really drew like from the whole Grateful Dead organization in this video, which I kinda like too, because yeah, Dick's right there at the start in like a Grateful Dead jean jacket. The thing Uh, with Jerry though. Yeah, I think Yeah. I was just gonna say the thing with Jerry is that like he's barely in this video, but like he is the star of the Touch of Grey video. Like he's, I mean, he's obviously singing the song, but uh, and maybe he just knew like, well, Touch of Grey, like this is actually a pretty good video. So (laughs) yeah, I'm gonna give it my all on this one. This Hell in a Bucket concept is pretty. This is pretty corny. So I'm just gonna like make myself scarce here. I know I, I have a feeling this is not gonna end well. But like you know, us turning into skeletons, like that whole concept, yeah. that's pretty cool. So I'll, I'll I'll let myself be more prominently featured in there. Um, right. I love like in uh, David Brown's book, So Many Roads. There's a, a, a basically a whole chapter on filming the Touch of Grey video, and I don't know. I just love how like grumpy they all were about it. Right. <laughs> like nobody really seemed into it at all, and Phil especially is just a huge grump about the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's it was a cool concept, and they pulled it off. And you know, when you have a big hit video, then you have to make a second one. And, right. I think uh, maybe they should have workshopped it a little more. But, you know, you, you said it sounds like a beer commercial, and it looks like a beer commercial. Right. Like it looks like the old tastes great, less filling beer commercials where, yeah, just a bunch of people at a bar. But, yeah, yeah, hey. One I like thing it, that man. I, yeah, it, you know, I had never seen it before today, and I'm really glad that I have it in my life now. So thank <laughs> you for that, gonna, Steve. I mean, I'm glad that they didn't do like in you know I love REM, but like I'm glad they didn't do like a like like a late '80s, early '90s REM video, like like a very self consciously arty <laughs> video, like where they look very serious. You know, right. like, at least they're just fucking around and having a good time. Like it's like one so of them's e- wearing angel wings and uh, right. It's like it's e- and like presenting Bob, something to a small child and yeah. And Bob looks like such a clown, but like you feel like he is. There's some level of self awareness with him. He's got like the bunched mm-hmm. up, you know, vest sleeves and the, the mullet going on, and I like it, man. I dig it. Um, one thing I do not dig is the last song of the first <laughs> set which is keep your day job um i'm gonna i'm gonna go on a lib here and say this is the worst song that's appeared on a dick's picks album yet 
and maybe ever. But it's in the conversation <laughs> forever. We'll, we'll circle back to this. Uh, but, uh, I mean, Deadheads hated this song because they felt like it was a subtweet of yeah. them, basically. But musically, um, it's just straight up bar band trash. Like, just the laziest sounding <laughs> piece of crap. I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> if there's any keep your day job stands out there. We'll hear from you. But this song is shit, isn't it? Yeah. Are you going to defend the song? I'm not going to defend it, but it's not as bad as its reputation. It's like That's the oh, my very is. faint praise. <laughs> I feel like, it, 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 to me, it's surprising. It kind of sounds a little bit like U.S. Blues to me. I mean, it has like a, it's like a dumbed down U.S. Blues, of course, but it's it's not that far afield from it. And I like U.S. Blues a lot, so I'm kind of like... Yeah, you know, I guess it's like an okay like set closer, but not not their finest moment. I think there are worse songs in the Grateful Dead catalog, and I think I'm not sure if they ever made a dick's pick, so we'll have to put a pin in that and come back to it. Yeah, we'll see. I as mean the series I, goes on, but yeah, it's it's not it's not great. And, I feel like I feel pretty confident planting this flag, at least so far, that this is the worst song to appear on a dick's picks. And yeah, we'll see. I think see. it's the worst we'll, so far, sure. Worst so far. And, and we'll see. We'll see if it gets worse than this, but I don't think it will. I, yeah. Maybe they played like a terrible cover, but I think like for originals. Um, and there's so many great set closers in in the Dead catalog, you know, that they could have played here. Um, and they played it at the end of like both shows of this stand. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, you go to both shows of the stand, and you're like, well, okay, they played Day Your Job on the 14th. They're not going to play on the 15th. We're not going to get two day jobs. Right. At least we won't hear day job, yeah. <laughs> they get, day, they get like, day job again. It's like, what the fuck? They got double day jobbed, yeah. Well, you know, they they didn't play any Chuck Berry covers, so they had to do something to... <laughs> I, didn't, uh, I didn't bathroom break this song, though. I was feeling very patient. I think I was enjoying hating this song. So I didn't yeah, leave. well, I mean, you gotta like. I mean, it. If you're gonna put out an '83 show, like <laughs> at least it is representative of its era, right? It's the kind of like historical authenticity that we we value in a Dick's Picks. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it seems so easy to beat up on it, but well, yeah, they stopped playing it after '86. They stopped playing after '86 because they were like, the song was so bad it put Jerry in a coma, so we can't even play it anymore. <laughs> So get it out of here.
Okay, so we're done with keep your day job. Kicking that shit to the curb. Let's get into the second set here, where the meat is. I think we can both agree, first set, pretty uneven. Yeah. Not a ton of highlights, kind of mediocre set. Right. Um, so not a, not a great way to get started uh, with this record. But the second and third discs, for you CD fans out there, um, <laughs> I think make up for the weakness of the first disc. And the second disc, I think, is really strong. You've got four classics, one of which might be a little played out for us already like in this series because we keep hearing it. Yeah. Um, but uh, we start with The Scarlet Fire, uh, which, as we've discussed, was a big played a big role in this show getting selected uh, for Dick's Pick 6. And... Um, you know, we've talked about how it's amazing that it, it took this long for Scarlet Fire to show up because it is, you know, one of the famous segues in Grateful Dead history. Right. It made me think, and I don't want to get too sidetracked with this with this uh, conversation, but it did make me think about, like, Scarlet Fire versus China Writer because those are the two big bad boys in Grateful Dead lore. And I, I feel like you're a China Writer guy. Yeah. And I think I would probably would be too, although I love Scarlet Fire. Yeah, I do too. It just comes in so late in my preferred dead zone that, you know, other than the really obvious ones, Cornell and its, you know, sort of close relatives, I'm not much of a Scarlet Fire expert, but they do, they both do the same thing really well, which is, I think, still a very unique dead improvisational thing, which is they both have those middle sections, which... I kind of describe as like a quantum zone for the song where you're, you're not, not quite sure if you're in China or Ryder and you're not quite sure if you're in Scarlet or Fire and it just sort of sits right in between the two songs for like a pretty extended amount of time in a, in a good version. Uh, and it's, it's really cool and it's something that the dead seemed really good at pulling off, which I think a lot of bands like don't really have the patience to just kind of sit between songs like that like we keep circling back to fish in this show and i'm sure that's irritating some of the old heads but that's the kind of thing that fish has never really been that good at like they can do they can pull off great segues but it's kind of like we're doing one song and now we're doing another song like it's not uh this sort of you know intermediate exploration uh even if you know that it's going to go from a to b it's kind of thrilling that it spends time in this neither a nor b zone before it it resolves and really exciting when it gets there it's and it seems like they were able to do that pretty much from the beginning like you know the first time they played this you know as a as a as a set piece playing both songs together it was on March 18th 1977 at Winterland in San Francisco two months after that is the most famous Scarlet Fire of all time. And of course that's from right. May 8th, 1977, the Cornell show. And it, and when you listen to that version, it has what you're talking about where there's that moment. It's like several minutes really like where you're not really sure what song you're, you're in, you know, like you, you've yeah, left. It's like magic. Exactly. <laughs> when you listen to this Scarlet Fire and I laugh every time I hear it, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's an affectionate laugh, but it, you know, is the marimba the, the like that that marimba sound that that Brett yeah. that Brent conjures from his keyboard, which is so loud 
It's so high in the mix. (laughs) It seems almost like, uh, I don't know, it it almost seems comic, like when he does it, you know, it it reminds me of like, you know, someone doing sound effects with their voice or something, like Michael Winslow from Police Academy or something was doing that sound into a microphone. Yeah. Because it's so What it always makes me think of is like, yeah, like old timey, like black and white cartoons where you have like skeletons (laughs) and they're like drumming on their rib cage and making like a xylophone sound. That's like, that's the image that comes to mind whenever I hear that, uh, that sound. I mean, it's like, you know, we talked about this. I've, I've done so much work in giving Brent the benefit of the doubt and like appreciating 80s dead for what it is. And that tone, that like 10 seconds of marimba almost brings me back to square one every time where I'm just like, anybody who could have thought that this sounded good, like I really have to question like, you know, not just that decision, but their entire approach to music <laughs> that, that's being over the top but it, it is like it's ridiculous <laughs> Like I will say, in defense of the marimba tone, is is that yeah, it's not it's not tasteful maybe, but it doesn't sound <laughs> offensive. It doesn't like take you out of the song. I don't think. Yeah, it, there's something about yeah. it again that to <laughs> me it's ridiculous, but it's playful and it plays into I think the party nature of of Scarlet Fire, which I think to me is the difference between this and China and China Rider, which to me, China Writer has a sense of drama to it and, yeah. and an intensity to it where it's a lot of fun to hear it live, but uh, it doesn't quite have the same sort of like we're hanging out in the quad, having beers in a joint, you know, feel that Scarlet Fire has, you know. And and, and again, I'm saying this as someone who loves Scarlet Fire, but like Scarlet Fire right. is like – hookah necklace and cargo shorts music you know like it's like dancing in a field and having a good time type music where absolutely i think china writer has like a has an emotional intensity to it maybe that like this doesn't have even though i love them both and i love the party nature of it but like you know we were talking earlier about jimmy buffett like jimmy buffett does scarlet Uh begonias does he do uh fire on the mountain too i scarlet fire or, or just scarlet I, you know, you're you're asking the wrong parrot head. I I know I have heard his Scarlet, but I don't know if I've heard Fire from him. Okay. Uh, okay. But yeah, you hit you hit like you hit the nerve perfectly, Steve. That like this is kind of as much as I also like Scarlet Fire. This is kind of my resistance to the song in this version, and you know, m- most recently uh, that I feel like in this sort of back half of the Grateful Dead's career. So, you know, starting from 1980 through 1995, they're always sort of in danger of becoming like background music at their own concert. 
in some ways where like i mean for kind of in a totally different lane like the, one of the issues with the dead is that their shows became parties uh more so than concerts uh including the lot scene and you know more and more fans trying to pile into these big stadium shows where people weren't necessarily paying attention to the show they were just there to have a good time and like i i like this scarlet fire i like it fine uh but there are flashes in this version that do make me think of like this is just kind of like pleasant music uh for the background and it doesn't have that intensity and drama that you talked talked about that is sort of what i crave from the grateful dead and what i get more frequently in the 70s so this really sort of like put into sharp contrast what my issue is between 70s dead and 80s 90s dead where it it doesn't have the drama that kind of puts like what i what i find very pleasant very good music it doesn't the drama bumps it up to like transcendent music that I need to hear every day. Uh, whereas this is just kind of like for a long, for long stretches of this Scarlet Fire, it's just like we're kind of pleasantly bopping along to this sort of quasi tropical rhythm uh, that these two songs display. See, like I am not going to disagree with that, but I think I'm just going to say that I like the party aspects of the Grateful Dead. One of the things I love about the dead is that, and I've said this before, but they have the unique ability to be a party band and an art band. And I think that there are moments later on in this set where the intensity is real and it is maybe more of an artful type thing uh, that that comes to the fore. Um, But I love that they can just be like, again, like that. I have a brew in my hand. I have a joint in my other hand and I'm loving life. I'm having a good time. I'm the sun is out and I'm enjoying myself. And I, I, I like that aspect of them. I, I, I like that they, that they can do both because most people are either Jimmy Buffett or they're Radiohead. you know, they, they can only do one or the other and right. grateful that can do both just like fish can do both. And they're to me, the only two examples of, of like, bands of that stature that can do that um so i have a good time when this comes on and to me it's a really good opening two shot of like of a set two because you're coming out you just had to sit through keep your day job and now you're gonna hear scarlet (laughs) fire and it it puts me in a good mood even if again i don't disagree with the idea that that this isn't like a transcendent version it doesn't take me to to another place although again I, i do think it does manage to have that feel in the middle where you are in that no man's land and you're not sure if you're in Scarlet or if you're in Fire on the Mountain. Like there is like a section in the middle. Yeah, uh, I disagree with this version. I'm sorry. I feel like it sort of like like limps <laughs> into fire. And I, I made the mistake of going back and listening to the Cornell version just for like contrast. I'm like, am I overselling like the Cornell Scarlet Fire and how like thrilling that segue is? And this one, I, it just feels like the Scarlet like the batteries on the Scarlet Jam run down and then they are like, all right, yep, it's fire now. <laughs> it's not this sort of no, like I, six minute period of like, which one is it? Which one is it? Well, you know, I'm not going to say it compares to the Cornell version right. or like, you well, know, it's, any it's like great of me 70s it version. Yeah, yeah. But I still enjoyed it. I, I still liked it. I, I, and it, you know, you can, you could disagree with, um, you know, 
making this the debut of Scarlet Fire in the Dick's Pick series. Right. You know, again, we were chatting with people on our Twitter, people just suggesting other 83 shows, and someone suggested a show, I think it was April 24th of, uh, of 83, where there's a Scarlet Fire and uh, they were really talking that one up. And I think they also mentioned there's like an 18-minute other one in that show too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so bringing up another Scarlet Fire just from 83 that might have been superior to this. Um, but I don't hate it. I, I'm not mad at it. I really liked it. I had a good time listening yeah, to and it. Yeah, and I disagree. I do think I – think I think the segue is actually pretty good. Not Cornell level, but I still think it's a pretty good – segue between the two songs yeah i mean I, I and i'll i will restate that i like it too i find it to be very good music but it doesn't have that extra <laughs> sort of like full band abandon <laughs> that i crave from a scarlet fire transition and that would bump it up to something that i think is you know amazing and a masterpiece rather than just like yeah this is a this is a good thing to put on in the afternoon while i'm you know chilling outside grilling some burgers it's it's definitely the highlight of this album so far, I would say, <laughs> sure. along with the Althea. Although we're gonna have some more highlights, I think, coming on uh, in the in these two discs here. The next track, I came close to bathroom breaking this song, even though I, I really like this song. But we've just heard it so often, yeah, lately, and that's that's estimated profit. Like this is this song is on Dick's picks three, five, and now six, right? And um, this is the weakest version that we've heard out of those three right um i mean i think five is the best one by far um and coming after five this just one just seemed a little pedestrian and i'm also just a little sick of this song right now so you know so it's it's interesting i think this is probably our bias showing from listening to these albums in order you know like if i had just pulled this off the shelf and and listened to it you know, without having heard all these other albums, like right before it, I might enjoy it than I did more revisiting it this time. But yeah, this time I was just like, oh, I don't need to hear this song again. Yeah, it's kind of showing, I think, the limitations a bit of like when you're alternating Jerry and Bob songs. Bob really only has a couple songs that he can pull off the shelf for like a big sort of jam exploration slot you're pretty much going to get estimated or playing for a lot of years. And so we just happened to get, you know, three out of four versions of volumes uh, with a version of estimated. And what I'm noticing with this 83 estimated is that it feels like, so we've gone from what, 77 to 79 to 83 with estimated. And every version seems to crank up the like hamminess just a little bit more. (laughs) Uh, Right. Like, this one you get, so I listened to a couple other 83 estimateds, and Bob seems to do this all the time now, where he says, yinny day, instead of any day, which just drives me up the wall. He does like his his whole no, no, no thing at the end. He does right, some of this. Right. I, I'm trying not to blow out my mic here, but his, hey! <laughs> like that stuff over and over again. And you, we both noted that the crowd just like eats it up. <laughs> Like they love oh, it. Oh yeah, they're loving Bob doing all these weird noises. I I love. There's even like a moment we've talked a little bit about the Bob Brent like ham battle, <laughs> and there's right. a moment in the jam well, where Brent starts doing these like smoky moans <laughs> over the jam. 
<laughs> and I'm like, this is him, like, uh, you know, returning fire in the uh, who can be the the corniest uh, person on stage well, battle. Uh, but yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's yeah. 80s arena rock audiences loved hammy vocals, man. They it's just true. They could it's not true. get enough. It's like, you know, I love Bruce Springsteen, you know, as much as anybody, but you get into like born in the usa era it's extremely hammy vocals from him it's like the hammiest like vocal period of his career true um and i I think that just communicated soul to people in 1983 and 1984 and it just did not age well you know like for us revisiting it like 35 years later it's like Reagan era soul, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> exactly. like, you know, the argument in favor of Bob being such a big showman has always been that Jerry was sort of receding from the front man role and Bob felt like he needed to step up, which I get. I totally get, especially when you're getting into the 90s. But, you know, this is a show, as we've said, where Jerry is like pretty passionate in his vocal performances. And yeah, he doesn't jump around on stage or anything, but... He, when he's got his turn, or even when he's doing backing vocals, he's he's pretty there, and he's pretty, like, uh, energetic. So Bob kind of going over the top here is maybe not, like, needed at this point. But, you know, whatever. It's one of those things that, like, if you were in the crowd, you probably loved it, and we're, we're being unfair judging it in hindsight. But, yeah, yeah I, I mean... mean the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the jam is a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's it's not as like certainly not as way out there as the '79 version we just heard, which gets into some really interesting spaces. This one is just kind of you know shouty Bob for a while. There's a couple interesting minutes of chaos right before this segue comes up, but yeah, not a not a version to that's a keeper in my opinion. So after that, we go into Eyes of the World, which I think I've said this before. This is my favorite Grateful Dead song. Um, mm, yeah. And it's the second time, I think, that it's shown up. I think it was in, uh, was it in, uh, it was in three, I think, right? Yeah. And we we talked about how that was kind of a faster version than how they were playing it, like in the early 70s. And this has a similar vibe to that one. It, it kind of goes into some disco-y places. And I really like this version, but it's interesting to me that, you know, again, this is my favorite Grateful Dead song, but we still haven't heard it to me in its best incarnation, which would be from 73, 74. I, I feel like that was yeah. the peak of Eyes of the World. I actually kind of like what they did with Eyes of the World at the end of the 80s. Where, you know, like when they would play with uh, like Branford Marsalis, like that era, you know, I, mm-hmm. I like because that was realizing it because that that's always been a jazzy sounding Grateful Dead song. And then they actually took it into like literal jazz land when they were playing with Marsalis. I thought that was kind of a cool evolution of that song. Um, but the real great 73, 74 groups, we haven't heard that yet on a Dick's Picks release. And we're getting these sped up versions, uh, you know, first on three and now here. I feel like you might like this version a little bit more than I do. I mean, I, I, I like this version, but it doesn't totally work. It's not totally hitting the spot for me the way that yeah. like, a really great eyes does. It's it's probably, I mean, it's one of my two favorite moments on the volume, I think. I find like it, it's pretty thrilling. 
and like i i also would prefer like sort of the jazzier slower 73 74 eyes to this very fast eyes and honestly one of the things i've learned from this month of diving into the brent era is that i always thought that they really slowed down as soon as brent joined up but they were still playing pretty up tempo uh through these early 80s shows the 79 show was faster than i thought it would be this 83 show is pretty fast we heard the like extremely unwisely fast (laughs) version of eyes on the last episode uh but this one you know never quite gets there and but by being played so fast and so aggressive it kind of gives me that like danger that i i felt like the scarlet fire was lacking like it feels a little bit like it could completely fall apart at any moment but it 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 hangs together it gets into again you know sort of like we were talking about talking heads being parallel at this time like there's some like sort of disco-y funky parts in the jam that i feel like wouldn't be that far off from a stop making sense uh iteration of talking heads so i really like it you get some good brent synth you know brent's using his electric piano a lot more in the second set here uh he's using it on this eyes and i think it sounds a lot better than it did in 79 like it's sounding a little more like classic roadsy instead of just like the icicle sharp electric piano we talked about in 79 and yeah everything's kind of working here in like a version that is very 83 but also doing some really interesting things for me yeah and i think especially going into the third disc you feel I, I feel like you, Brent's confidence as an improviser is is more apparent. Like he's doing some pretty sure. cool things and some pretty out there things um, as they go into some of the, some of the more free form parts of the third disc. After Eyes of the World, we go into drums, which is a relatively short drums. It's about five minutes. I know it's very I short. I was surprised. It's uh, it, compared to the, the jam that comes after. The jam after is yeah quite long. 
Yeah, drums is drums, right? <laughs> I mean, they got like <laughs> right. some new toys compared to the last one. They got, I think they've got a, like a gamelan, gamelan sort of thing up there now that you, you hear a lot more in the next night. But I wrote down, trying to describe drums is always funny in my notes. And the one thing I wrote is that it sounds like Mickey throws a xylophone down a fire escape <laughs> at one point in the drums, which much have been exciting for people there on various substances. Right. But yeah, I'm... I'm I'm kind of happy to have a five-minute drum. Yeah, I mean, uh, and then a very a very long space that is not called space. Well, and it's well, it, yeah, it's listed as spinach jam, and there's a there's a lineage with the spinach jam that we'll get into. But it, to me, like, it doesn't feel like a true space. It does feel more like mm-hmm. a, like a guitar solo, essentially, because it, it or a duet because it's right. Bob and Jerry right for the whole time. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah spinach jam and i know you were digging deep into the history of this i don't know if you want to like go over that i mean because it, it basically yeah. goes back to 68 like the, the the lineage of this although like did they refer to it as spinach jam or was that something that that tapers put on them no it wasn't even a taper thing either that's so it's so what it what it really is is the spanish jam that's what the tapers named it going way back probably to the early days of Grateful Dead tapes existing or Grateful Dead fans trying to label the different theme jams they played. Uh, It's a theme that everybody seems to assume is based on a Miles Davis song from Sketches of Spain called Solea. Uh, I listened to Solea and I I didn't quite hear it, but maybe I'm just not as up on my like sort of flamenco chord progressions. Uh, But you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a little chord progression that Bob will play from time to time that has this sort of Spanish flavoring to it. Uh, he played it. We talked about the almonds uh, sit in on February 11th, 1970, just before the volume four shows. Uh, if you listen to that dark star, you can hear a really cool Spanish jam that has um, Dwayne almond on it. Uh, and it's, you know, a lot of these sort of theme jams of the dead play, like the feeling groovy jam or the mind left body jam uh, sort of, were played a lot early on and disappeared, but the Spanish jam stuck around all the way to 95 and you can even find, and Steve, I want you to know that I listened to <laughs> a dead and company version of Spanish jam just to hear what it sounded like. Ooh. So that might be the first time I've actually listened to dead and company, uh, uh for research for this show. So I'm sure it won't be the last, uh, sweet mare licks. You're, 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 yeah, you know, wrapping it, it up. It turned out to be sweet uh, Jeff Comenti licks. It seemed like he was the one that uh, steered them into uh, Spanish Jam. So anyway, everybody knows it is Spanish Jam. Uh, everybody's called it that forever. But Dick seemed to have like a weird hang-up about named jams. Uh, and he would always kind of, I think, troll the fans by not using the proper name or the proper taper name for a jam. So instead of Spanish Jam... He calls it Spinach Jam. Uh, right around this time, I think even the same month, uh, The Dead put out Dozen at the Nick, which is uh, some shows from Albany in 1990. Uh, and there's a very clear Mind Left Body Jam on that show that they decided to call Mud Love Buddy Jam instead. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually this went away and they just started calling things Spanish Jam and Mind Left Body Jam and all the like, you know, sort of accepted jam names. But for a time here, Dick, I think, was just kind of like, 
like fucking with people and like you know you notice even in these early volumes he doesn't call it space even though like on uh dead set they call the post drums free form section space officially for the first time uh and that was in 1981 and here you know 15 years later uh dick still refuses to call the post drum section space he just either labels it jam or gives it a silly name like this one uh so spinach jam it is known as which is a little unfortunate i mean it's like spinach jam sounds kind of uh i I think less serious than spanish jam but uh you know he he had to get his uh in jokes in somewhere i guess i think it does make sense though to to delineate it from space to me because it, it does seem different than the space sections i don't know it, it, it just doesn't seem as far out as as space would often get and it, it, it you know like the space sections of like some of the 79 shows that we were listening to in the dicks picks five episode um this does seem like something different so whether he was going to call it spanish jam or spinach jam or whatever to me it makes sense that it wouldn't be called space yeah i think this is kind of what they were doing for space though at the time like i know at least on the the 15th the next night is also like a Bob and Jerry duet without, you know, anybody else on stage to my ears. I didn't listen to every space from fall 1983 in preparation for this show. Uh, sorry, everybody. <laughs> but uh, I do think maybe, you know, space took different shapes over the years. And I think at this point, it sort of did take this duet form, which is actually like, it's kind of nice. I, I, I like it. I dig is, it. I like This it is lot. not the Spanish jam I would go for. Like there's some really awesome ones in the seventies that are really jazzy and really freeform. Uh, but it is kind of cool to just hear the two of them playing off each other in isolation, which is something you don't get very often. You can kind of cl- do a close listening project and pick it out from the, the, the the broader sound of the band but this is just a a chance to hear it on its own and yeah it's a it's a neat little taste of their unique dynamic yeah i mean to me this is the beginning of a three-track progression that is my favorite part of this show so i really like i really like the spinach jam and it goes into i think like a like a pretty strong version of other one one thing that i want to like talk about here and you noted this in our outline you talked about what Dan Healy is doing to Bob's vocals, like putting like an mm-hmm. echo on them. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, I don't think it's overbearing too much, but it did make me think not about, here. Yeah. not here, but it did make me think about like, like the weird relationship between Dan Healy and Bob Weir. Like, and I don't know if this has ever been officially reported. I mean, they talk about it on, uh, on message boards and, uh, you know, I've heard it from other people, but like, like, like Dan Healy apparently had some issue with Bob and he would like, would fuck with Bob sonically, like on the soundboard and basically just try to humiliate him on stage. I mean, it's kind of like a weird antagonistic relationship. Yeah. They talk about like shows where he's mixed really low or, you know, the, the distorted vocals thing, I think. They, you know, Bob must have been on board with, <laughs> at least at first, and maybe just went too far with it. Uh, my friend sent me an 88 show today that 
uh, had basically transformed. It's, uh, it also had the other one, and Bob sounds like some sort of like cyborg <laughs> while he's singing it, which is has not held up well over time. But, uh, you know, later on, he was also, you know, Bob was kind of the first one to really get into like the MIDI sounds and changing the sound of his guitar and changing the sound of his voice. And I think he was the first one to work with Bob Brelove, him and Brent together, I guess, who was the sort of MIDI sound effects engineer guy in the later years. So it's hard for me to tell where this like Dan, supposed Dan Healy, Bob Weir spat like started or what form it took, but yeah, at this point, like just adding a little dash of echo is kind of nice. And I, I always kind of right. like the idea of the dead having these people who weren't on stage that were manipulating their sound, uh, which it sounds like Healy did some of that. And Bob Raylove definitely started doing that a lot uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. So, yeah, it's kind of a cool. This is the first sort of taste of that new arrow in their quiver, I guess. I gotta say, I really like Brent on this song, too. There's some weird rinky-dink keyboard sounds here and there, but he's also doing some real cool synth stuff as the song progresses that I like a lot and I think is like Brent at his best in this era. Yeah, the other one, I mean, it's like the one in 79, too, where it's it's not that long and it seems kind of like a bridge in in some respects from one song to another, but... Yeah, the, the, the spacier they can make it, the better it is in my book. So it's a pretty cool one. Yeah, it's only six minutes. But it, they're still able to take it to like an interesting place in the space of that. Um, and it ends up building up to Stella Blue, which... Is this like the best song on this album, you think? I mean, I think this is probably the best song. Um, they, yeah, or, it's this or Eyes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Really beautiful. That's th- this is my other favorite for I sure. Think, yeah, it's a great. What a great it's version! A, it's a great yeah. version. I think the impact of Stella Blue is dulled a little bit because the other one maybe isn't taken out as far as it could have been taken out. I always love hearing Stella Blue in you know at the end of the second set when you, when there's been like a really out there space where they go really far out, really discordant and esoteric and then they can come back out of the murk and play Stella Blue. I feel like that is probably my favorite Grateful Dead ballad that goes in that slot. It's either Stella Blue or Warfrat or Morning Dew. I guess Morning Dew more in the 70s. I feel like but I feel like those three songs usually end up in that slot and Stella Blue is always my favorite to hear come out of there. And uh this version has a great solo at the end jerry really kills it and yeah we were talking earlier in the show jerry limbering up you know doing alabama getaway he's fully limber at this point and just ripping sounding great (laughs) yeah i mean i think you can pretty much judge estella blue by how hard they hit that uh i've been in every blue light jeep hotel uh line where it gets like it swells and uh and builds into this like you know louder section before the first real jerry solo of the song and man they hit it really hard the whole band's really like clicking at this point and yeah it's just stella blue is a song that it's taken me some time as a deadhead to like fully appreciate i think i was just too cool for ballads uh for a long time in my deadhead life and 
I know Steve still gets on me for being too cool for ballads with uh, the other jam band, but <laughs> yeah, Stella Blue, particularly this one. If they were all like this one, I would be I would be on board. I mean, sometimes they get a little sleepy, but this is definitely one that hits the drama that a really great version of this song needs. Uh, and yeah, it's a it's a great sort of emotional peak to this set. From the ballad, they go to the standard <laughs> "Feel Good," "Grateful Dead" track, "Sugar Magnolia," um, and you know what can you say about "Sugar Magnolia"? I mean, I, this is a great song. I, I mean, it, it, you know, we were talking. I, I was knocking "Keep Your Day Job" as a set closer for the first set, you know, because that's a shitty song, and like you don't want to hear that at the end of the first set. Whereas "Sugar Magnolia," if you go see the Grateful Dead. And they're going to do Sugar Magnolia and then go to the Sunshine Daydream Coda. I mean, that's a pretty uplifting way to end. Especially, you know, we've gone through a couple shows now where they're putting Chuck Berry songs in this slot a lot. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty cool to actually hear them to hear them play this song and then what they play in the encore. I think it's a pretty strong way to end this show. So, you know, I don't know if this is like an exceptional version of Sugar Magnolia, but... I think it's pretty damn good and i liked hearing it yeah yeah they're kind of like partying people out to the parking lot from here on out and <laughs> yeah as you said sugar magnolia and encoring with us blues is just about the ideal way to end a show i think to edit right like of, of almost every era of the dead and yeah i mean neither one are really ever going to change that much but they're just really good dead songs and showcase the dead doing what they do best and after that stella blue where were you gonna go anyway so it's you might as well <laughs> get, get a couple crowd pleasers in there so 
this is the second show in a row now, like where they've released they've released a complete show, right? Um, and from here on out, like not all the Dick's picks are going to be complete shows. There's still going to be some survey type releases that they do along with complete shows. And I'll, I'll say that for me, generally, I'm in favor of doing complete shows. Like I like hearing even the songs I don't like. You know, I like the documentary aspect of feeling like I was actually there and I can hear everything that the people there heard. Um, but if you did have to cut anything, is there, would you cut anything from this show just for this, for the sake of like a better listening experience? Yeah, I mean, I think my, as I said at the start, my ideal version for this volume would be to take just the first set of 1015 and plop it on top of the second set of 1014. And I think you got a really good show there that at least like follows the structure of a full dead show, even if you're not totally recreating that. And I think, you know, that that's that's like an approach that I think Dick maybe got more comfortable with. And that certainly, you know, Dave Lemieux, who took over the series, will deploy from time to time uh, as far as just sort of like pulling out highlights and cutting some of the fat out of especially these more uneven eras uh yeah i mean if you're gonna keep it just this show and you're gonna put it out on a cd you might just have to cut the the whole first set and make it a two disc set because like yeah. honestly i think maybe only althea is the only thing that i would really miss if you lost that first set uh right which and, it's is, like, and, and that's and that's not like a outstanding version of Althea, it's like good. Yeah. I, I I love pretty much any version of Althea, but um, yeah, like you, you're gonna hear Althea other places, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's a good way to go. I think the first set is such a drag on this album, honestly. <laughs> and, and when I and, and and when I listen to it, I don't like if I was just listening to this for fun and not for a podcast. Even though this podcast is a lot of fun, of course, but <laughs> I wouldn't listen to the first disc at all. I'd go right yeah. to the second disc. And right, second because I think the second and third discs are actually quite enjoyable. Um, not the best discs picks by a long shot, but like still fun to listen to. But mm. yeah, you don't need the first disc at all. I think you could just mm. cut that out. Right. Um, so we alluded earlier that we're going to be doing a special episode next <laughs> that is going to be deviating from the discs picks. Formula and and Rob and I have talked about how we're gonna probably do this um, every seven episodes or seven seven or nine episodes or so, um, just to shake things up and you know just like the dead the dead didn't play by the rules so we're not gonna play by the rules. They had their side projects uh, to keep things have, fresh, yeah, right? Right, and this is our Bobby the and the Midnight's. exactly i think the point is is that you know the dead obviously this is this is their history is so vast and their reach is so wide that sometimes it's worthwhile listening to something else outside of the dead world to get a perspective on the dead and and we're going to be picking artists that in some way are connected to the dead or that we're going to make a connection to um so it's going to be a way to talk about the dead, but while also actually talking about another band. And our first band that we're going to be doing, I don't know if we want a drum roll here. <laughs> I don't know. Probably not. There we go. There's a drum roll. <laughs> That's my gamelan. <laughs> As you guys, we're going to be talking about fish in our next episode. And specifically, we're going to be talking about 
Um, for my money, one of the great live shows of all time. I think it's a, like an amazing show. 4-3-98 from the Island Tour. And we're going to be lining up right around the time of the anniversary of the show. I guess it'd be, what, like the 22nd <laughs> yes. anniversary of the show. So not, not, not a round number, but, you know, close <laughs> enough. An even and, number. Uh, it's going to be, I think, and I'm looking forward to doing it because I think it's a great show. Um, I think it's going to be an opportunity to talk about that period after Jerry Garcia died. Mm-hmm. And the dead were in limbo, and there was this audience looking for the next jam band, and how Fish um, both lived up to that role and also avoided that role, and, uh, and and just the rivalry that ended up sort of existing in a way between not so much the bands but the fans of the bands, yeah. Um, and also, it's just going to be a fun way to annoy some of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> We, yeah, love, we, put, we love our right. listeners, but there's some, we know there's some people out there, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there that love both bands, but there's some people out there that love the dead and they don't like fish. Right. And, uh, we're going to, we're going to investigate that a little bit. We're not asking you to love fish necessarily, but you know, we want to kind of talk about why there is still among, among some dead fans of uh, some wariness mm-hmm. of I guess the next band in the succession of of the jam band lineage, right? Yeah, we we put up a a poll that sort of hinted at the fact that we were thinking of covering another band, and would people be interested in hearing us talk about Fish or Jerry Garcia band, or I forget who the third option was. Was it Mayor? I think it was Mayor. I said, <laughs> I think it's <laughs> um, Mayor. Right, but it was course. like the response to it was surprisingly, I think to both of us, uh, divisive. And it honestly only made us want to do a fish episode more because <laughs> I think there's, it's interesting that that tension still exists because uh, I know when I started listening to fish in the mid 90s, I mean, that was definitely a real thing, the sort of dead crowd versus the fish crowd. And, uh, you know, I thought we were all buddies now, especially after Fairly Well and Trey you know, ably, more than ably stepped into Jerry's shoes. Uh, but I guess that there's some bad blood out there still. So we want to investigate that. <laughs> and, and you we know, besides heal. that, yeah, we want to heal. We want to be a healing podcast. <laughs> uh, but besides that, just to, to tease my own angle that I think is going to be interesting is, uh, you know, I, I sort of realized I did the math this, this week and realized that, uh, you know, Fish started in 1983. So, 1998 was 15 years into their existence, which would put them, you know, right where the dead were at 1980. So you can kind of think of 1998 as kicking off like, you know, almost an analogous 80s period for uh, for fish uh, if you're comparing it to different dead eras. And I think it's interesting to look at fish, a band that has never changed their lineup other than dropping their second guitarist very early. Uh, how they've managed to reinvent themselves uh, without swapping in new people or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, making these more sort of conscious uh, shifts in sound over their history. So, yeah, there's a lot to dig into. I also think the Island Tour is like, you know, one of the great runs in fish history and live music history. And I'm I'm psyched to talk about it uh, with you, Steve, and with the listenership. Yes, let's bring people together. Let's annoy people. 
Let's do it all. I'm excited to get into it, man, as always. Yep, so look out for that. And then uh, rest assured, we'll be back on the Dick's Picks train right after that one. Uh, getting into some uh, some really cool uh, cover art that has aged perfectly over <laughs> the last 25 years. All right, so much so much fun to get into. So we will be back in two weeks talking about fish, bringing the Jam Band Nation together. Until then, yep. everyone, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you guys later. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman and mastered by Matt Dwyer. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The The Corner Corner of Gray Street. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.